0: Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas.
1: People are losing faith in the conventional economic approach. It's not working. The governments, the specialists, the planners have said do A, B, C, and X, Y, Z will happen. It hasn't worked out. We still have terrible problems. And we have all across the country people in communities trying to start businesses not simply for the private profit of a few individuals, but for the good of their community. They feel their community is running downhill, there's high unemployment, there's deterioration, and they say, we can't trust the government and large corporations anymore to solve
0: all our problems. We're going to have to do it ourselves. Tonight, new ideas on
2: economics and ecology, part four. The Chinese have a word for crisis, which is Wei Qi. Wei means danger, and Qi means opportunity. So whenever they say crisis, they, they see danger and opportunity together. Now, normally in, in the West, when we use the word crisis, we think, oh, my goodness, everything's falling to pieces. Quick, let's hold up the old system. But when crisis is seen constructively, it is basically a transition between one way of living and another, or one way of doing it, economics and another, or whatever the nature of the crisis.
0: New Ideas on Economics and Ecology is written
3: and presented by David Cayley. The words economics and ecology come from the same root oikos, the Greek word for household. Ecology is the study of the household. Economics, the rules for running it. That's what the words say. But in practice, our economy is more like an out-of-control machine that's rapidly reducing the household to ruins. So what if we tried to put economics and ecology back together again? What would be the consequences? I imagine this would make us think very differently about the economy, we would stop seeing it as something abstract and machine-like and start thinking about how it actually fits into nature, including human nature. We'd also think about what the economy is actually doing to our households and our communities. And perhaps, in the end, economics would become the servant of the household and not its master. Tonight, you'll be meeting some people who are trying to invent this new economics. Community economics is what most of them call it will visit Nanaimo, Sudbury, Sydney, Nova Scotia, as well as the United States and Great Britain. In all these places people are trying to regain control of their own economic destinies, trying to rebuild local economies which are diverse, stable, and secure. But first a remarkable and inspiring story from New York City's Lower East Side. It's not exactly about economics, but it is about a community which rediscovered the qualities we'll all need to create economic renewal. Courage, imagination, commitment, and hope. Hanging out on the
4: streets, looking for something to eat and a place to sleep. The police are everywhere. It seems the police are protecting the drug dealers here and there. Demonstrators with their banners and slogans demanding that bills are passed. Who knows how long the bills will last? Stolen cars on the streets. The only people who are benefiting are the car strippers. Night is the streets at night where anything is possible. Night is the streets at night where anything is possible.
3: Night Glide by Slimmer Williams. He's reciting in La Plaza Cultural, a gathering place in the Lower East Side. Slimmer and the people who live here built it for their neighborhood. The Lower East Side takes up about 30 blocks of New York City. It's mostly Puerto Rican, and they call it Low East Side. Like the more famous South Bronx, it's full of abandoned and burnt out tenements, but not as many as there used to be. Since the early 70s, people have been restoring this neighborhood. They've been reclaiming abandoned buildings and transforming them into homes. They've been planting gardens and vacant lots. Installing solar collectors and windmills on rooftops and painting murals on the sides of buildings. The residents of Low East Side have had some help with this. One group that's assisted them is the Institute for Social Ecology. The director of the Institute, Dan Chordokoff, showed me around
5: people initially came into these buildings as squatters and later were able to force the city to turn over title and to make funds available for rehabilitation a lot of the work done here initially was based on a model called uh, sweat equity urban homesteading sweat equity urban homesteading allowed for people to actually come into the buildings and as these are low-income people lacking equity Uh, for down payments, to purchase their own homes, to put up their sweat, their labor power as the equity. And people were trained in basic construction techniques and given the opportunity then to work with uh, technical assistance teams in rehabbing the buildings. And there are about 30 buildings that are currently being homesteaded on the Lower East Side now. The original plans, of course, had called for almost 700 buildings to be homesteaded. The neighborhood is unfortunately under tremendous pressure now from real estate speculators and is, though it's hard to believe as we stand here looking at uh, abandoned buildings and derelict hulks, is the neighborhood is being gentrified currently with rents quadrupling and many of the low-income tenants being forced out to make way for uh, a new generation of yuppies.
3: It's a sad irony that success has turned against the community in this way. But yuppies aren't the only problem. The Reagan administration has added others as well by cutting back on federal funds for housing programs. In the 1970s, this community relied on federal money for much of its rehabilitation work.
5: Cutbacks at the federal level have inhibited much of the master plan for the Lower East Side from being realized. That was a plan which was developed, I might add, by a grassroots, coalition of community groups and who met over a series of four or five years uh, regular quarterly town meetings trying to bring together all of the residents of this low-income community to involve them in the planning process and the plan which they developed was one which called really for the creation of a more or less self-reliant, ecologically sound, Lower East Side, the transformation of this ghetto into a place of green spaces, gardens, rooftop greenhouses, solar collectors, windmills, uh, much of the technology which we at the Institute for Social Ecology advocate and our technical assistance and program planning assistance was instrumental in helping to realize the parts of that vision which were brought to life.
3: Despite financial setbacks, people here have not given up. In fact, across the street from where Dan and I were standing, there was a quotation from the Bible painted on the side of a building. It's from the book of Isaiah. It said, They shall rebuild the ancient ruins. The former wasted. They shall rise up and restore the ruined cities, desolate now for generations. We continued up the street
5: one of the major problems that the neighborhood has faced has been street crime and particularly drugs drug dealing the corner uh which we just passed back on east third street in fact was for a long time an open-air drug supermarket cars with out-of-state plates would line up down the block to purchase their drugs and the police seemingly did nothing about it last year uh, mayor Koch instituted what was known as operation pressure point which was a major to get the drug dealers out of the Lower East Side. Here's another building being homesteaded here on East 7th Street, and next to it is a community garden, uh, one of many here in the neighborhood. The community garden served as a marvelous focal point for community organizing efforts. They seemed to draw people into the organizing matrix who ordinarily would have not become involved, and they were a real focal point for intergenerational contact as well. In fact, many of the street gangs here on the Lower East Side became involved in the gardening projects and the open space work, and they began to come in off the street and become involved in productive activity. This is a mural that we saw earlier that's always struck me as really remarkable. It's, uh, once again, a very graphic depiction of that ecological vision for the Lower East Side that I mentioned earlier. We see the windmill on the roof of the building, rooftop solar greenhouses, the Lower East Side, a community center with community arts going on, a green market in one corner. Uh, In the foreground, there's a a protest against gentrification and then there's a a crystal ball being held aloft by two hands, which has a a green space with children holding hands in a circle in it. homesteaders on one side and plants growing and the sun shining. It's a a transformed cityscape, which reflects the vision for the Lower East Side, which inspired people here to create the very powerful and effective community movement, which has borne fruit.
3: The community movement in Lower East Side has not only transformed some buildings and vacant lots, it's also transformed the people who live there. And for Dan Charterkoff, that's the most important thing about
5: it. Each group which took over building was encouraged to actually form a homesteading association to create their own regular meeting forms, their own forms of leadership, and to develop not just the physical rehabilitation of the buildings, but the building of social forms and political forms that can help to empower people as well. And it's that personal empowerment and community empowerment that I think is really the most significant achievement of the movement in Lois Saida.
4: Gardens are constructed, and they are these people who are destroying the gardens. The government says that the city is going broke, and yet the salary for the government workers is going up. Ha, 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 isn't that a joke? Night glide is the streets at night. Where anything is possible, night is the streets
6: at night. Any emergencies happen while I was
3: out?
4: No. <laughs> Not yet. I have one
6: check.
3: The offices of Rodale Press in Emmaus, Pennsylvania. I found a word here for what I'd seen a couple of days earlier in Loeys Sida. Regeneration is what Bob Rodale calls it. And you'll be back. Rodale is the founder of the Regeneration Project. It aims to help communities renew their local economies. The project operates out of the offices of Rodale Press, publisher of about 40 books a year, plus a number of successful magazines, the most famous probably still the original, Organic Gardening. Bob Rodale is choosy about words, and he thinks the word regeneration sets just the right framework for community renewal. Regeneration is really a
6: fascinating idea. The, uh, the earth is, uh, is regenerative. There's something in this earth that causes it to uh, heal itself. Regeneration is really healing. But my basic uh, perspective is that the healing force of the earth and within the human body is more powerful than the destructive force. Th- there are destructive forces of nature like floods, fire, earthquakes, But if you look at the history of the Earth, these destructive forces are always followed by regeneration, and the Earth keeps, until the last few hundred years, has kept getting better and better. And there are many examples in uh, human life, too, where uh, illness or disturbance, I'm really fascinated with the idea of what I call benign disturbance. Life is a series of benign disturbances followed by regeneration and healing and but successful people who live very long uh, if you ask them you know what tell me about your life you'll find that they it wasn't a flat uh, level life it was marked by disturbances to which they responded in a regenerative way and became stronger as a result so in economic terms that's what we're ex- we're thinking about the the benign disturbances of a local economy that cause it to trigger regenerative actions and basically pull itself up by its bootstraps.
3: Bob Rodale derived his ideas on community regeneration from work he was doing in agriculture. He noticed that when land lies fallow it doesn't just stay the same, it improves. So he began to wonder if farms could regenerate in the same way and if they could do it by using their own internal resources. For example, by using crop rotations, green manure crops and compost instead of synthetic fertilizers. The idea worked, and Bob Rodale decided it could also be applied to regenerative community improvement. See, the
6: idea of regeneration in a farm is based on the idea that there's a boundary around the farm where you can observe the inputs coming in, and the, uh, you can study within the boundary what kind of production is really happening and look at the outputs going out, out over the boundary. Now, a regeneration of a community introduces the idea that there's a boundary around the community. So we try to establish what the boundary is around the community or the series of concentric boundaries for different uh, commodities and services. And then we, we develop means to measure the vitality of the resources within the boundaries and the uh, amount of inputs coming in over the boundary. So. Uh, We're creating indexes and uh, manuals so that people in communities can get a sense of the degree to which they are regenerative now
3: and their potential to become more regenerative. The Regeneration Project is now working with communities in several American states, and the idea's been adopted by other community organizations as well. Ultimately... It involves a new definition of economic well-being, one that doesn't just depend on the notion of economic growth.
6: We encourage people not to think of growth as much as thriving. Like a regenerative community would not necessarily be a growing economy, but a thriving economy, and there is a difference. We haven't yet really found good ways to measure what it means to thrive, but uh, I know for a fact that measurements of growth do not really translate into a clear understanding of, of well-being, economic well-being. It's possible for there to be a lot of economic misery within a growing community. So we have to really redefine what economic well-being is. And it, I think it needs to be marked by a sense of, of thriving with a whole, perhaps a whole different uh, pattern of activity and different value system. I can give you one example is uh, around here we have the Amish and the Mennonites as farmers and they they have a very thriving economy they don't have insurance policies they have no insurance industry because they all take care of themselves, they do a tremendous amount of repair of their machinery and they save a great deal A a thriving community would have in addition to shopping malls repair malls where products would be repaired and renewed and, and a remanufacturing industry. It would be rebuilding from within.
7: Charlie? <laughs> yeah. Bob Rodale uh, is backing out right now, and he's coming over to the service department. His horn had a problem on the way over here. Bob Rodale, and he's
3: At the automotive recycling company in nearby Allentown, Pennsylvania, I found an example of regeneration at work. Peter Fuller, the company's president, calls what they do here whole automobile remanufacturing. And it corresponds exactly to the Regeneration Project's idea of the productive reuse of resources.
7: We try to use as much of the car as we can. Uh, We don't try to hide uh, anything. Uh, We reuse things that may be a little tarnished. uh, that don't look new, but again, we're trying to uh, retain as much as the value of the car. So what are the economics of the process? Well, uh, typically, remanufacturing costs about 60% of new car replacement value. In some cases, it's as low as 50%, such as this 530i model. The new replacement value would be uh, on a 730 series car, and that would go somewhere for around forty, you know, thousand dollars. So this gentleman had his car completely rebuilt for somewhere around sixteen thousand dollars. So that'll give you an so idea. That's way less than half. That's way less than half. Yeah.
3: How will this compare in durability uh, to the new car? Do you think?
7: Well, our cars we feel will go at least 150,000 miles, and um, I would say you can't call it new because it's not new. But it certainly has a durability factor, uh, which we feel is equivalent uh, to a new car. How does it fit into the general regeneration
3: model that uh, the Rodales have been developing?
7: Basically, regeneration means using less uh, external uh, input. And what we're doing is we're taking all the internal input that we have right here in this facility and that we have with the products that we're getting uh, from people or ourselves. And we're reusing up to 90% of uh, those original parts and of the the car. We do buy new parts uh, from the original manufacturers through dealers, but we also buy them on the aftermarket, but a considerable amount of what is used in the car are rebuilt parts uh, or uh, good used parts, uh, which are originally on the car or that we find. Which means that in terms of
3: remanufacturing rather than new, you're substituting labor for new capital.
7: That's exactly correct.
3: Yeah. And that has an impact within the community as well.
7: Absolutely. We we employ at any given time anywhere from 30 to 60 people, depending on our backlog and depending on the time of year. Who would otherwise be em- unemployed. employed in Germany or Sweden. <laughs> and, and yeah, we call it remanufacturing in America. is what we say. But uh, th- this is a technique that... We hope to expand to government uh, vehicles. We are now being approached by Arkansas, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, and uh, also uh, Illinois in terms of starting a remanufacturing facility in their states for government vehicles. Instead of the government going out and buying new vehicles, they can employ uh, people in their state and save tax dollars by remanufacturing.
3: Regeneration, as Bob Rodale said earlier, is a response to disturbance. And one of the greatest disturbances in our economy today is unemployment. Many communities have been trying to respond to this by creating their own jobs. That means also creating more self-sufficient local economies. Guy Dauncey is a British writer who's written several books on unemployment. In Great Britain, he's observed the spontaneous growth of what he calls community
2: economics. Because people at the level of their own local economies have been observing that the employers can no longer be relied upon to create new jobs because of new technology and other factors, they've been looking around and saying, who the hell cares about our local economy? Whose responsibility is it to create jobs? And they've often been discovering that the normal municipal policy or provincial policy is simply to go out prospecting for a big Japanese company or a big American company to come in and provide more jobs. And that has become a real beggar's option in the last few years because there are so many municipalities and provinces and states out chasing very few footloose industries that in Britain, especially in Scotland in the north, localities have been saying, look, this is ridiculous. Let's begin to develop our own latent indigenous entrepreneurial talent. In other words, how can we encourage people locally to start up in business themselves? And this means that you have to create a a network of new Economic institutions. I mean the most common one in Britain is called the, the Local Enterprise Agency. We have about two hundred and forty of these and they're basically small shopfront business startup centers, not hidden away on the sixth floor of a big government office block, but very much like the butcher's shop or the baker's shop, where you can walk in and have your questions asked about your business ideas. And the interesting thing is that the the cost of job creation through these agencies is around four thousand dollars for each new job created. And just to give some measure of comparison, the British government's enterprise zone policy, which is setting aside certain parts of the country to be special tax havens and all sorts of rates and rebates and stuff like that, that the cost of job creation in those areas is $80,000 per job created. And we're looking at $4,000, a a 20-fold decrease in the cost. And we've had the same experience with the local agencies that start up corporatives. Um, They're coming out with a a cost per new cooperative job created through producer cooperatives and worker cooperatives of, again, $4,000 per job. And the other interesting thing is that the survival rate of these things is very different from what we'd expect. The normal folklore is that three businesses in ten will survive three years. In other words, seven will go under. And In America, they say that 80% don't survive five years. What we're finding through these new local institutions as part of the community economic development thrust is that those figures are being totally reversed? That seven or eight out of 10 are surviving three years. And in the States, they're quoting that 80% are surviving five years. And the reason is that we are shortcutting the beggar take the hindmost type of attitude like, you know, you set up your business in private, you get to make profits in private, and you die in private. And the community is getting actively involved in supporting enterprises because they produce jobs, they produce wealth for the locality. And there's a a fascinating reappraisal going on politically on this because there are right-wingers involved in it, there are left-wingers involved in it, there are people in the green movement involved in it, there are housewives living on estates involved in it. I call it transpolitical as a movement because it's, it's drawing on the best aspects of traditional right-wing thought, meaning a belief in enterprise, initiative, standing on your own feet, self-reliance, stuff like that. And the best aspects of left-wing thought, which to me express a concern for our friends and neighbours, for our local community, collective thinking and a concern for the environment and it puts them together in a new sort of strategy at the local level which to me has the seeds for a new way of local economic thinking for the next century. This new
3: strategy is appearing throughout continental Europe and North America as well. In the United States for example, the Institute for Community Economics estimates there are now nearly 40 community loan funds in existence. These funds tap both public and private sources Then channel money into grassroots community development. Here in Canada, we're also starting new organizations to finance community business development. One of the leaders in this field is the city of Nanaimo in British
8: Columbia. Uh, This was all raw land. We started it six years ago. As you can see now, we've got a nice little neat complex. We produce about two and a half million fish a year, Chinook, coho and up to last year, we also produced uh, steelhead.
3: The Nanaimo River Salmon Enhancement Project is a small-scale hatchery. It creates jobs and rebuilds local salmon stocks. It also benefits the community indirectly by creating economic spin-offs in both commercial and sports fishing. The Salmon Hatchery is a project of the Nanaimo Community Employment Advisory Society. The society started in 1975 with funds from the federal government. Since then, its coordinator, Don McMillan, says they've created 90 businesses and more than 500 jobs in the Nanaimo area.
8: I guess we're one of the first, first uh, communities in Canada to actually have the opportunity to, to experiment with community economic development. And you know, once we set our planning um, um, into, into motion, uh one of the first functions we had was to go around to the local lenders and say well here's what we are about and community based we want to stimulate employment etc cetera, etc cetera. um a lot of the local bankers looked at us like we're crazy uh what do you mean For community economic development uh community getting involved in, in 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 business i mean what's all this stuff right however you know we kept on banging at doors banging at doors and it's a matter of it's like anything, I guess. What you need is success. Success tells a story. And after we got two or three projects up and running, I mean, we were very, very cautious in our plan. Intentionally, we didn't want to just take that five hundred thousand dollars and just throw it out into the community. So our, we we planned intentionally three projects in one year, x number of jobs. I think it was twenty or thirty jobs we wanted to create by accessing and and sort of begging on the doors and. Uh, taking the suck in the hind tit as far as security goes, in our position, those businesses flourished. Uh, and then the banks and the decision-makers say, well, Jesus, maybe there is something here.
3: The Nanaimo Community Employment Advisory Society only puts up part of the capital for a new business. The owner must also have a stake, however small. The balance comes from banks, credit unions, or private investors. The society's commitment to the project gives them the incentive to invest. So far, only six of the society's businesses have failed, and its debt loss is much lower than most banks would expect, only about 1.5% per year. This is remarkably similar to what Guy Dauncey described earlier in Great Britain, the very low failure rate of businesses started through local enterprise agencies. Community loan funds in the United States report a similarly high rate of success. Don McMillan thinks there are two reasons for this. The first is that community-based organizations like his don't just loan money. They also provide technical assistance and moral support. If a project's in trouble, they'll step in and help rather than just pulling their loan. The second reason, and this helps explain the low debt loss, has to do with community involvement. People repay their loans because they know the money will recirculate in the community and help other businesses as well. Here's an example.
8: A lady came in. Oh, three or four years ago, and you know, it's, it's very typical. Uh, she was on uh, just finished a two-year diploma uh, course at the college, divorced recently, divorced, single parent, no no credit history. However, she had one asset, and that was out of a divorce settlement, was a uh, a 37-foot converted tugboat. Uh, she went and secured a contract with federal fisheries for surveillance work for the summer, five-month uh, contract. I think the contract was. Twenty-seven thousand, twenty-six thousand dollars. However, part of the agreement, uh, the contractual agreement, that she had to have seven or eight thousand dollars worth of electronic gear. Okay, which she didn't have already in, in the, the vessel. So, with the contract in hand, she goes to a credit union and wants to borrow eight or nine thousand dollars. No, she came to us. Uh, we took a look at the contract, sat down with her, and she really didn't need eight or nine. She needed uh, twelve thousand dollars because she needed some working capital. Uh, because the government was six weeks in paying, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we took a, a, a chattel on the, the the vessel, advanced her twelve thousand dollars on a demand uh, basis, and uh, so it was six months down the road that she had to pay us. Uh, we called the note, and uh, she came in, you know, with a certified check for twelve thousand somewhat dollars. She said, you know, I, I've worked hard for this money. If it hadn't been for you people, A, I wouldn't have gotten it, but B, if it had been a conventional lender, I don't know if I'd paid, paid a all back. <laughs> and she paid us. Now she's still operating.
3: Nanaimo's Community Employment Advisory Society exists to create jobs, but that's not its only objective. It also exists as a tool which can shape the direction of the local economy. For example, the society tries to support local production of goods and services, which now have to be imported into the community. And in this way, it tries to strengthen and diversify Nanaimo's economy. The society is also interested in ecology. It won't support industries that pollute Nanaimo's environment. And it's equally concerned about the welfare of the people who work in the businesses it supports.
8: We don't want to use capitalism, quote capitalism, doesn't matter what scale, to be abusive to the the employee, uh, we don't like piecework, as an example. In some cases, uh, we've turned down assistance because of that that piecework. Um, we've turned down um, assistance because of the attitude of the applicant towards their their workers. On on the other hand, we've been involved in uh, in worker-owned enterprises, and. That's a relatively new phenomenon for us in Nanaimo here. And it takes a hell of a lot of work. You know, decision-making and uh, who's who in the, the zoo. So, you know, it's just not black and white. You've got to take a look at the viability of the business, and then you've got to say, okay, how is this business going to operate? And you might have, and we've turned down a viable business because of, of certain attitudes. To succeed,
3: community economic development needs the support of the whole community. And over the last 11 years, Don McMillan says he's seen quite a change in the community's attitude. At first, there was resistance. But today, both the community and the city council are far more open to the idea. In fact, many communities are now embracing the idea of local economic development. So much so, in fact, that Don McMillan worries it's becoming a bit of a fad. And he wonders whether all the enthusiasm and expectations mightn't lead to disappointment a disappointment which could undermine the excellent long-term prospects. And so he leaves us a word of caution.
8: Community economic development is a buzzword right now. I mean, everybody, everybody is on the bandwagon. I remember giving a presentation at the Chamber of Commerce uh, six, seven years ago, and it was viewed as commie talk. (laughs) Now, I mean, it is very, it's established. It's, it's, It's establishment. You've got the provincial government, you've got the federal governments, you've got the right, you've got the left, you've got every sector involved in saying community based economic development. It's not a panacea for economic recovery.
3: John McMillan's caution about community job creation suggests that a strategy for economic regeneration mustn't rely on only one component. It may also involve revising our ideas about work and about the proper role of technology in our economy. Technology, that is, big technology, is the particular bête noire of George McRoby. George McRoby co-founded England's Intermediate Technology Development Group with the late E.F. Schumacher. Schumacher died in 1977, and since then, McRoby has continued to preach the gospel of human-scale technology. He believes we've allowed our existing technologies to create unemployment by failing to ask ourselves what work is really for. So far, economists and others have paid very little attention to the
9: meaning and content of work itself. We regard work as a cost, some unnecessary chore that has to be done in order to produce goods and services. Now, Schumacher and those who who followed him, and indeed many who preceded him, said that work has several functions. One is to, of course, produce necessary goods and services. But another function is to bring out the creativity in human beings, to develop their skills to the highest possible point. A third function would be to enable people to work together To socialize, not in the political sense, but to socialize us. To enable us to work together, to cooperate, instead of uh, promoting this idea that everyone is out fighting with everyone else. Now this leads you to the idea that one of the things we should be studying would be human ecology. Now human ecology would require us to look at the nature of work itself. What is the impact of work on the worker? Can we really afford a technology that dulls people's minds and destroys their initiatives? We need a technology that does the reverse. Secondly, the geographical distribution of work. Must we have a technology which concentrates people into cities, which are really slow gas chambers? Certainly cities in developing countries are. Can we not have a technology that more evenly distributes activity geographically? And thirdly, question of the ownership, the social organization of work. We seem to believe that there are only two forms of ownership, private and state. But there are many other forms of ownership which we're now seeing beginning to develop in Britain and on the continent and in the USA, North America, workers cooperatives for example, and community cooperatives. And these are new forms of ownership which we need to expand if people are going to be given a chance of having more control over their economic
3: environment. These new forms of ownership are now expanding quite rapidly. According to George McRobie, more than a 1,000 workers' cooperatives have been started in Britain in the last 10 years. In the 50 years before that, he says, there were only 10. Workers' cooperatives are also expanding elsewhere, in Canada, most notably in Quebec. George McRobie also suggests we need to evaluate the meaning of work for the worker and not just for the economy. Guy Doncey is also interested in that. And in his experience, that's
2: exactly what people are doing. One of the hidden revolutions of our time is that, firstly, more people than ever before are changing their jobs voluntarily in spite of high unemployment. More people are wanting part time jobs, flexible work options. And a freedom to define their own working life, very different to the expectations that we were reared with, which is basically that you, you get a job in your early 20s or when you leave school and you work at that job until you retire and you're, you're told when to have a holiday and you're told when to go off for training and you're told when to retire. And it's all looked after by someone else. What is emerging now in the new patterns of work is people wanting to define how they work for themselves. And so what is beginning to appear is a new definition of full employment, whereby everyone has a fulfilling livelihood but it may not be 40 hours a week for 48 weeks a year for, um, you know, 40 years of life. It right. may take many different shapes and forms. Whether it's similar to what the Winnipeg teachers do, where they have a it's called V-time, or deferred the Deferred Salary Leave Plan in technical terms. When they can buy into a scheme whereby for four years they take a reduction in salary, they save up at a a tax-reducible um, rate, they store the money in savings, and then they buy a year off with the guarantee that they get their job back at the end of the year. And when an employer has a fixed number of people that doing this every year, that employer can simply take on an extra 25 or 30 workers, depending on how many people are taking time off. Uh-huh. So I think this is going to be very, very big. Work-sharing, part-time work, deferred salary
3: sabbaticals, all of these promise some reduction in unemployment as long as there are jobs to share. But what happens when there aren't enough jobs to go around? That's what people in Sudbury, Ontario are trying to deal with. In the last 15 years, Sudbury has seen employment in its mining industry cut in half. Technological innovation, international competition, and declining demand for nickel have all played a part in this. Sudbury has tried to bounce back by diversifying its economy, and to a remarkable extent, it succeeded by focusing on mining equipment, health, education, tourism, sport, and the arts. It's also come up with a long-range plan for the region. But even so, there are limits to the number of jobs they can create, and even the new plan recognizes this. Narasan Katari is the director of long-range planning for the regional municipality of Sudbury. He suggests we can no longer afford to think of work only in terms of paying jobs.
10: We have uh, suggested in the plan that dependence on the formal economy, which is the job, through the jobs and uh, through the traditional means uh, on which we have depended since the Industrial Revolution began in 1760, those uh, avenues are closed to a large extent. Not many new traditional jobs are likely to be created, although some will be. So what we are suggesting is there should be a greater reliance on the informal economy consisting of the household, communal, and the underground sector. What we mean by that is uh, we should enable people uh, to depend upon themselves. In a way, it's the old argument, uh, if you want to be really progressive, if you go far back enough in time, you'll be ahead of everybody else. That was the way we were. We depended upon ourselves for our own uh, basic needs, and we are suggesting in a number of families that may be the only option subject to a nationally introduced uh, guaranteed uh, annual income for cash transactions. The rest of it we are suggesting that people should explore, depending upon themselves, uh, through barter, if you will, uh, if I do accounting work for my neighbor and he does uh, Fix up my electrical uh, work in my home, uh, then uh, neither one of us uh, is worse off. Both are better off. Do you
3: contemplate then a kind of dual economy or dual society in Sudbury where some of the population will have relatively high wage employment in the formal economy and this other group will will have a kind of subsistence,
10: barter-based way of life? I would not characterize it as a subsistence economy, but uh, I am submitting to you that uh, it's not just Sudbury that this form of a dual economy is emerging. It's emerging throughout most of the industrialized societies that the formal economy will concentrate on the economically efficient way of producing goods using the most uh, advanced uh, technologies available in order to remain competitive. Uh, whereas there would be an informal economy, which would depend on the household communal and the underground sector, which would be mostly outside the private market economy. So there would be two social classes, if you will. It has been an axiom since age 1760 that uh, people who are able and willing to work should have a job. I think for the first time we'll distinguish between job and work. All of of us have plenty of work to do. Many of us won't have jobs.
3: How can planning and public policy generally support the informal economy? I think uh, the first thing I'd like to do is
10: we give a lot of uh, incentives for small businesses to do a number of things. I'd like to ask a simple question. Why don't we treat the household as a production unit and give it the same benefit? that we give for all the small businesses. What's the difference if I work in my basement or an, uh, g- I go and work in a workshop uh, a few blocks away? I believe through legislation, through policy, household can be treated as a production unit and g- be given the same privileges that are enjoyed by other businesses. The choice is very limited. You have to make it possible for everybody to become a producer of wealth, a producer of products, a producer of services, so that they can depend upon themselves.
3: Sudbury is certainly not the only place in Canada with serious economic problems. Cape Breton Island, for example, has its share. But it wasn't always that way. Cape Breton was one of the first parts of the country to be industrialized. The Canadian Trade Review for 1900 called it the Pittsburgh of Canada. But after the Second World War, the area went into a slow decline. And today, it has the dubious distinction of having the country's highest unemployment rate. The economic changes in Cape Breton have been agonizing for the people there among them, Father Greg MacLeod. Greg MacLeod grew up in Cape Breton. In the 60s, he went to Europe for graduate work in philosophy. Then he came home, returning via South America and Montreal.
1: I arrived back from South America into Montreal, and it was really nice to get back into the developed world with all the amenities, nice new building services, things clean, hustle and bustle uh, tremendously. Uh, optimistic attitude, at least in the 70's around Montreal and Toronto, and then when I hit Cape Breton, it really, it was like a cold bath. Uh, the buildings were worse than when I had left. There were, there had been no new construction, there were been old buildings and uh, high unemployment, uh, things were closing down, more coal mines were closing. And uh, the most uh, ambitious
3: government program was subsidies on the train fare to go out to Alberta. Greg MacLeod had no sympathy for the idea of uprooting people from their communities and transporting them to faraway jobs. He wanted the jobs to come to the people, and he was convinced it could happen. So in 1973, MacLeod and his colleagues founded the Cape Breton Association for Cooperative Development. Later, they called it New Dawn.
1: New Dawn, it was very interesting and in a way quite simple. Uh, we, we had a group of people who were concerned about the community, first of all, and that, that that was fundamental. We We wanted to do something to help our community here in Cape Breton. Number two, we wanted to do it in such a way that it would not be a charity. We did not want to be continually dependent on handouts, and so we said... Let's try and make this into a business so that we will generate money and we will be able to keep ourselves going and be independent. And uh, at that time, we figured the safest area to go into where you could do some good and also make a bit of money was real estate. And so we bought one building and uh, we renovated it and rented it. And uh, with the rent, we They made cash flow, and we built up a little money, and we were able to buy another building and uh, employ people to renovate it and provide housing, improve the uh, neighborhood. We did all of those sorts of things, and it was very pragmatic.
3: Today, New Dawn's assets are worth more than $3 million. Most of its holdings are in real estate, but at various times, New Dawn has also operated a construction company, a wood lot, two dental clinics, and an old people's home. One of Greg MacLeod's great inspirations has been the Mondragon Cooperative in the Basque region of Spain. It's a group of cooperatively-owned manufacturing businesses. Its products range from truck bodies to domestic appliances. Greg MacLeod went to see Mondragon for himself and was very impressed. What I'd
1: like about it is that it breaks all the rules. In, in Nova Scotia, Every time we talked about trying to do something up here in Cape Breton, the planners, economists, university-based economists, the government planners would say, no, no, it won't work. You don't have this. You need uh, a world-class airport. You need uh, these kinds of resources. You need. Uh, you have to be have this concentration of population. For a while they were telling us in the 70s that The Maritime should be 90% urbanized and Halifax should be a city of uh, half a million, that's double its present size, in order to bring about economic spin-off. And they knew this because of their studies that they had done all over the world and their models that they had developed. That's the way the thing works. And uh, according to all these plans, Cape Breton was just not earmarked for development for good scientific reasons. Okay, then I looked at this place in Mondragon. It's in the Pyrenees, in the mountains. It reminded me of Inganish, northern Cape Breton. No railway. They didn't even have a railway going in. Uh, no airport, no waterway. Uh, you, the only access was along these mountainous roads by truck. And yet, in this, uh, these vill- small towns... You have a billion-dollar business, uh, factories producing fridges, stoves, truck bodies for Volvo, and uh, there's no really big city. The biggest town was about 20,000. And uh, so I began to read up more on it and uh, look at it and visit it.
3: For Greg McLeod, community economics involves more than just a change in how we do things. It involves a change in how we look at the world, Modern economics is based on a mechanical model of how things work. Do this, and that will happen. But community economics, he says, requires a more organic view. A big problem that I
1: have had all along with the old economic approach is fragmentation, where the program looks at only one dimension of the human reality, tackles only that, and neglects a whole other spectrum. Now, my own approach is that, in reality, everything is connected. The economic life of a person, their job, their cultural life, their social life, their spiritual life, it's all connected. I found out only later that uh, the definition of an ecological attitude would be one that recognizes that everything is connected. So I consider my view of economics is ecological. So
3: I consider myself an ecologist. In Greg McLeod's thinking economics, and ecology come together. Right now, we tailor our communities to our economy. He thinks we should do it the other way around, tailor the economy to the community. Whether we can do it is a question now facing us all. And so Greg McLeod believes we may be watching our own future unfolding in Cape Breton.
1: At the present time, we have a very interesting situation in Cape Breton where the federal government has decided to initiate a new organization called Enterprise Cape Breton, they admit, the federal government admits, that all the old approaches have not worked in Cape Breton, and they've chosen Cape Breton as a pilot project to test some new approaches. And I think that it's fascinating for the whole country to look at this and to see, will it work or not? Now, my question is... I'm very hopeful and I hope that they will really experiment and they will not try to do the same old things using different names but actually using the old bureaucratic, quasi-scientific approach which is centralist and controlled by people somewhere else. And the test for me is going to be on whether it will be geared to merely attracting industry to come in from other places or will it be geared to promoting growth of the local community. Now, promote growth of the local community in terms of the local community is ecological. Attracting industry from other places in most cases is non-ecological because the main concern is not whether that new industry will fit into the local ecology, the human, social, cultural ecology, but whether they will bring new money in the problem is bigger than money for me.
0: You've been listening to New Ideas on Economics and Ecology written and presented by David Cayley, Technical Operations Lawn Tulk, Production assistants, Gail Brownell, and production, Sarah Walsh. We've prepared a printed transcript of this four-part series. It costs $5, and you can get one by writing to Economics and Ecology, Care of CBC Enterprises, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W 1E6. Please enclose a check or money order for $5, and remember that delivery takes about eight weeks. We've also prepared a reading list of the subject. It's free, and you can get one by writing to us here at Ideas. Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W 1E6. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair Good night.